Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What do you think is happening when you hear the terms custody, maintenance, intervention orders and protective services? If you think that is that it means children being involved in a messy family breakup, you're right. How far would a parent go to keep their children? The title of the book that I'm going to speak with author about is the t- uh, is this I would kill for, and the author is Anne Bust. Welcome back, Anne. Thank you, Jan. It's great to be here. Oh, look, we we see you in many guises in this station, but this is the third book about Natalie King, dark, sexy, but troubled heroine. She also has a warmth about her. It feels as if she's a a character that you really do enjoy writing about. I do. It's it's um, look, she's very close to my heart, and I, I'm glad you feel the warmth because. She's She's got bipolar disorder as well as being a psychiatrist, which is under variable control. But a lot of warmth goes along quite often with that. And I mean, of course, people with bipolar have downs as well, but they're usually very vibrant um, and often very creative characters. And that's hopefully what I well, tapped into. In a previous book, you describe her as riding a Ducati, a Ducati motorbike, a size too big and wearing a tank top a size too small. <laughs> we learn she has a cockatoo called Bob. She sings in a pub band and takes drugs to control her bipolar. She's not a superhero. Nope. But she has another controversy in her life. The bean. <laughs> the bean. Well, over the three books, Medea's Curse, Dangerous to Know, and now this I would kill for, um, they're, they're separate stories, each book, but her backstory continues. Um, and part of her coming to terms with her bipolar is also her age. She's perhaps a little late to mature. She's in her early 30s, but it's finding her partner and settling down. Um, and at the end of Dangerous to Know, I kind of leave people a bit up in the air because she finds she's pregnant but doesn't actually know who the father is. Yeah, and the the two fathers are both keen to be fathers. Mm, yeah, look, they're both troubled. Well, Liam is is certainly a flawed hero. Um, perhaps Damien is more of a a standard good bloke kind of thing. But I hopefully bring up some. Well, he's not perfect either. Mm. Um, neither of them are all good or all bad. And I like to do that with complex, real type characters. And it, it really proves it. In her working life, Natalie has been involved in infanticide, kidnapping, and now her client, a new client, Jenna, has come to her. Look, let's read a little bit about how Natalie, the psychiatrist, looks at Jenna. Her style was inner-city greeny, bright-coloured top, vaguely Peruvian-looking, and baggy red corduroy jeans tucked into heavy boots undone at the top. She probably volunteered to help slow learners at the local primary school. Her marriage might once have looked magazine perfect. Walks along the beach hand in hand, Sunday sleep-ins interrupted only by a boisterous rescue dog, helping the kids decorate cupcakes with Disney characters. (laughs) Except somewhere between packing the lunchbox and Saturday morning sex, she'd ended up with two children, a mortgage she couldn't pay, and an ex-husband who thought she was nuts. (laughs) So why has Jenna come to Natalie? 
Well, obviously, I kind of tap into a lot of my own experiences mm. in my work. Um, <laughs> I hasten to add. Uh, and at this point, we should say Anne Bused is a psychiatrist. <laughs> yes. Um, and I don't have bipolar disorder, but obviously, I work with a lot of people with bipolar disorder. Um, and the, the sort of work Natalie does is, is kind of she's a junior version of me in that sense of the medical legal work I do. And there is. A lot of, you know, protective services are inundated with cases, um, sometimes related to custody, but obviously there's the family court that does pure custody. The children's court does um, much more where protective services are involved. And I've put a really messy case into this book that has both Mm. aspects of a custody and protective services involved. So um, it's, you know, husband and wife against each other and against the state. And, of course, the media gets involved. Yes, they And do. you have two sides of the media, two uh, very left-wing, right-wing columnists who write on their own perspective. Uh, Mark Lebroy, how does he write? Um, he He's, uh, I think I probably mentioned he writes for the Herald Sun um, <laughs> or, or something similar. He's... Um, Look, he's very passionate, and, I, and what I wanted to create was two passionate people who believed in and had some arguments, had some arguments for their mm. point of view, not necessarily that I agreed with either of them. And, in fact, Natalie kind of gets a bit frustrated with them with both. both. Because, and it's my frustration with columnists and, and media people that take one argument and just run with it without looking at what we do in psychiatry all the time, which is the grey areas and how things are more complicated than just saying good and bad. So... Um, What this court case, I kind of throw everything into the mix, really. It's the sexist kind of issues, Um, male, female, who do you give the child to? The oldest child is not biologically his child, Um, so he's claiming he's the better parent because he doesn't have a mental illness. Natalie is – and there is absolutely no reason you can't parent very well with a mental illness. Um, So Natalie is very much wanting to defend Jenna in the sense that there's – she can. The mental illness should not be an issue. Um, but then we throw in he happens to be Muslim. Um, and probably more importantly for this, he's um, comes from the middle, his family back in the mm. Middle East. And so all the anxieties that that um, – with, without, I don't think – he's not particularly um, – of Muslim faith. He's not very – he doesn't practice. So it's not a big issue in that sense, but it stirs up all the prejudices. Oh, it does. So Mark Lebroy is, is writing on the, the right side of politics and then we have Katlego Okeke writing on the left side of politics. Yes. And the more playing the race, racist card. And yeah, the and uh, so she's uh, very oh. much, um, you know, doing the left wing kind of look there's been a lot in the press um that we've had issues and some appalling behavior from you know on twitter in particular they've both got twitter followers both got twitter followers and but in real life um we did some appalling things to someone i'm not going to name but someone who you know don't necessarily have to agree with what she said and did and i don't actually but i certainly disagree with the appalling hate mail she got Well, of course, the Twitter followers save our children and kids really matter. They, they they become their own characters in themselves, really, horribly. The case becomes more intense when it's revealed that eight-year-old Chelsea has been abused and the Twitter feeds become more intense too. Oh. 
and it can't help but involve Natalie. And I guess one of the, the sort of nice parallels that kind of worked, I think, well, um, is that she, she doesn't necessarily have a custody case, but she's got a fatherhood issue of who's mm. the father. So she, in the background, she's getting paternity tests, but it's about who she should be with. Should she just go with the biological father regardless? Is that what's best for the child? And really looking at what is best for the child. What is best for the child, yes. And... Uh but she she doesn't actually know children psychiatry, so she no. brings in a mentor of hers, Declan. And I was fascinated by this. Declan told uh, Natalie to get this young eight-year-old Chelsea to do a drawing, and the explanations that came out of this was just phenomenal. So I'm just wondering, is it close okay. to truth? Well, it's a long time since I've done child psychiatry. Whilst I'm a better forensic and parenting psychiatrist and perinatal psychiatrist than Natalie is, I'm no better as a child psychiatrist, apart from I've done a lot of infant work. So zero to three-year-olds is now. But beyond that, I was relying a lot on the child psychiatry that I did. I did go and talk to some current child psychiatrists. But what I do have in my unit, well, the unit um, that I'm involved with at the Austin, is we do have an art therapist there. So we do do a lot Ah. of art therapy. And it's I've supervised a number of art therapy students and it's such a fascinating area it's controversial and you know Declan says this is how I'm interpreting this particular drawing and that's certainly been written about it's certainly in in the literature um but whether it's an absolute no (laughs) but it's an indicative for me yeah Yeah. (laughs) well Natalie doesn't think the father is the abuser but she's challenged by Professor Wadwa who's devised his own idea on what psychopaths are from um, uh, studying men in uh, the prisons. And he also questions her professional integrity. So of all of the – now she's got she's – Just got what worried. she doesn't need when she's no, pregnant. When she's pregnant, she's got the ethics board on side. And or not on side. <laughs> she gets her own personal hashtag hater. Yes. Yes, hashtag psych bitch. Ah, all of this, and her brother becomes an employee in the father's company. Oh, look, through the case of Malik and Jenna fighting for custody, we, we really, as you say, get a fascinating insight into how the family court, the children's court, and what protective services and social workers actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot. They've got hard decisions to make. They've got an incredibly difficult job. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to grab it, get a subpoena at the moment because there's a protective services case I'm involved with and they were going to have to delay the whole court case because I was going overseas. When I told them I delayed leaving, I think you know, they just kind of wanted to give it me a hug. Kind of, <laughs> it was like oh. – because it's such – and and they're, they're, poor protective services are running around after me to give me a subpoena and I just think it's so unfair and a waste of their time in the midst of all else that they have to do. So they have all of this reading, all of this knowledge and Mm. every Twitter writer can have an unjust opinion in 144 characters. Well, and I think particularly what this book was kind of really trying to sort of stir up and get people to think about is how our children make us bring the emotions to the absolute fore. And if you're going to ever kill anyone, you would be kill them for your children. Um, and this is where a lot of passions, um, when you think you've, the court's made the wrong decision for you, um, virtually all the parents I see want to be the best per- parents. They desperately want to have their children, but it doesn't mean that they can or that they can at this moment or that that is best for the child. And that's an incredibly difficult We've got a historic reference on that, which I think is interesting too. Now, we have Natalie just with one case of abuse, but what is Liam working at? 
Oh well, we we put Liam on the royal commission, for, of child, of, abuse. Of child abuse, which I thought just you know the, the timing just worked really yeah. well for, for me with this, um, and also I wanted to sh- a lot of people didn't like Liam. I'll be interested to see what they think of him at the end of this one because I I think he's a very complex character. Certainly no angel. Um, But neither is his wife or his ex-wife. So it's about having real people and people behave badly when they're going through divorces and custody battles. It doesn't bring out the best in you. And I like the um, juxtaposition here of uh, Liam is dealing with a man that he really wants to bring out the abuser. Yeah, and that man, even with all his maturity and everything, can't do this. Yeah. And of course, here's uh, Natalie with um, eight-year-old Chelsea trying to do exactly the same, yeah. and she can't do it either. And, and it stirs up, of course, stuff from her oh. background. I've always known there was something in her because we've always known her father was absent. Um, so I resolved that one in this as well. Yes. Uh, and interesting, when I first the first draft of this, he was actually part of the Carlton Mafia. Um, oh. And when I finished it, I thought, yeah. No. I actually don't know anything about the Carlton Mafia, um, so I completely rewrote the entire thread of that. Um, so, and I always knew she wasn't sexually abused. I've always said that 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 wasn't her her problem. That, that it needed to be something different. So, yes, she was traumatized, but it wasn't sexual abuse. <laughs> As you say, there's a lot about fathers in this book. Her mother mm. won't tell her mm-hmm. who her father is, who her own biological father is, but she's been incredibly happy with her stepfather. Yep. There's the paternity of her own child, Dame in the Cop, who would love to have a, a child, and Liam has got two teenage children and a very vindictive, accusing ex-wife. And then there is the case she's working on where eight-year-old Chelsea loves her stepfather. Father. Maybe he should get custody. Can I just finish with um, Anne Bust reading a little bit more from This I Would Kill For? Jenna shook her head and got up to go. If Malik thinks this is the end, he's mistaken. I'll never give up. She turned back at the door. Her green eyes stared coolly black. Coolly, coolly back. I'll kill him rather than let him have my daughter. I'm not taking a chance she ends up in the Middle East. I'd rather spend the rest of my life in prison knowing I saved her than leave her with that bastard. (sighs) Many people have been killed in domestic relationships. What makes them so destructive comes to light in this psychological thriller. It's a ripper. And I think right at the very beginning, you start with a biblical quote from King's. Divide the living child in two and give half to each parent. Um. The dedication to your husband, Graham Simpson. Good enough, parents. I think we were. I think you were too. I hope so. (laughs) And used another fabulous uh, psychological thriller following Natalie King. This one was This I Would Kill For by text. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jan. Well, I can't quite compete. We've got messy families in, in the novel I'm looking at and a child's perspective, in fact, several the perspective of several children. But, Jan, we all know houses are haunted, and in Penny Russon's The End Sister, we find out why. So, Penny, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, the Outhwaites are living in Australia, but they inherit a house in London. And so this whole family is being uh, moved to London, and it's quite an extensive family. Who have we got in the household? Uh, it's a, it is a big family. I particularly wanted to write a novel about a big family. So there's Ollie and Dave are the parents. Um, 
And then there's Else, who's um, about 16. There's Clancy, who's uh, just started high school. There are the twins who are at the end of their primary school career. That's um, Oscar and Finn. And then there's little Sibby, who's four years old. Now, one interesting element is that we hear this story from the perspectives of three of the children in the family, Sibby, Clancy and Else. So we've got a range, age range there for about 12 and 16 now, the remarkable thing is um, they're all the different ages. I'm just amazed at the challenges of getting those three voices. That would have been quite difficult. Uh, it, I think it came quite naturally, actually, because um, I live with... I have a, um, a young boy, so he's seven now, and a teenage girl who's 14 and... Uh, um, at 12 year old as well so I kind of live with that diversity of voices in the house I'm, I'm always hearing those cadences I guess of, of the small child and then the older child and then the teenager But it's their understanding of the world so for example this is from uh, one of the chapters by Clancy um, and a letter has arrived what's this? I hand it to mum noticing the queen on the stand in the corner Mum opens the envelope with a butter knife. Dave, she calls out. Dad comes into the kitchen, rubbing his hair with a towel. I can see a bit of shaving foam bubbling near his ear. Read this. He scans it, sits down and reads it again. Is it real, says Mum. It looks real. But how can we, says Mum, just as Dad says, it makes sense. Who else would there be? I'm used to hearing my parents talking like this in half sentences, like some kind of code. It's a small house and there's so many of us. They don't get much of a chance to talk without one of us listening. Of all of us, I'm the best at disappearing into the woodwork, not jumping to conclusions, not flapping about, squawking like Oscar or else. Usually, if I stay quiet and don't interrupt, Mum and Dad forget I'm here. But today, they're giving nothing away. How could we, says Mum. What will the children say? We can't tell them, says Dad. Not yet. Tell us what, I ask finally. Nothing, says Mum. It would be something, though, wouldn't it, says Dad, his eyes bright, staring intensely at Mum. It would be really something. The next chapter. Yes, Mum agrees, though she sounds less sure. It certainly would be something. Now, this half uh, knowledge that children get, I can actually remember my parents talking in code. Um, it's the thingamajig, it's the hoojakapiv. They know precisely what they're talking about, and we don't, and the assumptions that are being made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, again, I've just said I have three children. I, I mean, I'm constantly talking in those half sentences and and um, and sort of trying to communicate enough to my husband so that he'll be able to follow the conversation while, you know, not saying so much that the kids will pick it up. And so even though it's Clancy's point of view, I'm also kind of orienting myself, I guess, in the parents as well. They're all coming to life there. You've also got uh, Sibby, who keeps talking about the End Sisters. Now, the End Sister is the title of the book, but we uh, don't really find out who the End Sisters are until sort of towards the end of the book. I'll give you a clue. It's a what they call a mondegrine for those that are into language. But uh, Sibby's on the cusp between knowing and not knowing about life's mysteries is how you describe her. Yeah, that I, I, I actually just love that, that sort of four-year-old age where so much of what they say is 
um, feels like it's a, a glimpse into another world or into a kind of previous prior existence or something and it's, it kind of gets you in touch with childhood but it's also a sort of elemental kind of knowledge about the way that the world works. Um, so, yeah, I was really fascinated by writing through Sibby and through Sibby's experience and the whole book comes from a mishearing from one of my daughters and something that she said and so the the end sister that misheard word is um which is the book is kind of predicated on began with with a so we won't tell the listener what the end sister is but it'll come to light when they read the book and then there's else on the verge of womanhood and the next violin lesson (laughs) yeah yeah, so poor old Else, she's, um, she's been learning violin for a long time. She's 16. She's trying to kind of work out, does she want to be serious about it for the rest of her life? Um, and and she um, she's a, a different sort of character again, I suppose, because she's, quite, she's really quite melancholy. But here's the thing. You've got the one storyline. They're all going to this uh, house, mansion even, uh, in London, but then the perspectives of those three narrators so to speak who are all different ages and all see the world differently yeah 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 um the the novel actually began um as online as a um as a a novel with a a a company called storybird.com so they invited me to write this novel as a um a serialized novel and i um I went back and looked at old serialised novels, um, children's novels. Noel Stretfield was the person that I used as a kind of template and she would write these kind of family novels where the, there was a lot going on and every kid had their own story and I thought that will keep me interested, it will keep the reader interested. Um, the novels changed a lot in in the, um, you know, basically what ended up on online was a first draft and then I had to I had to rewrite it and redraft it and recraft it. So it started off in third person. It was all in third person, um, and that first person point of view of Else and Clancy kind of emerged very organically in the rewriting process. I mean, you often hear authors who sort of say, "Yes, I tap into my eleven year old self," and they've got one entity that they identify or one age group. But you're identifying with at least three, but. There are further narrators that we've got here. We've got almost Annie and hardly Alice. What can you tell us about those two without giving too much away? So they are the house. The house is haunted. You find out fairly early on that the house is haunted, and and the two ghosts that um, that you meet uh, in those early chapters are almost Annie and hardly Alice. So they're. Um, both from they both are from some historical point in the house from different parts. So when almost Annie wakes up dead, hardly Alice is kind of peering over her, waiting for her to, to you know speak, and um, and and so hardly Alice is from an earlier part of um, the house's history, but she doesn't really remember herself or or where she's from. Almost Annie has a much clearer sense of herself. She was a, a, a nurse, so she was a um, or a nanny to the children, so she... And I'm just going to raise one more uh, line of narration, <laughs> and that's the house itself. In the locked attic of the house on Mortlake Road in southwest London, near a bend in the River Thames, something stirs. It shudders, a cobweb thing, tattered and dusty, so long forgotten, so long forgetting. It is hardly anything, but it's almost something disturbing the shadows, shrinking from the approaching light. 
So you've got the house being a narrator as well. Yeah, I really like the idea of the house having a subconscious. And there's a, another point in the novel where the house kind of narrates all the all the family's dreams. Well, it all comes together, actually. You've got all of the, the fractiousness of the family moving, all of the issues that emerge when they're moving, um, but and also then don't unlock the uh, attic door. Oh, no, can't oh, unlock no, the oh, attic door. But when that door is open, it's not just that ghostly sense that uh, emerges but those fracture lines in the family as well. So it's almost like opening that door sort of brings to its um, height or peak all of the issues all of the individuals are having in the family. Yeah, yeah. A nice nice drawing together. So some of those issues, um, for example, we have Else and her violin lessons, but they're sort of a philosophy uh, behind here. Um, so uh, Else meets up with a violin maker. Uh, and why are you making it then is one of the questions she asks. Well, no one requires its existence, yet it exists. It amused me to make it and it hurts no one. And if there is a message in it, it is that music is important, even if you are a little king. So this miniature violin for um, the heir to the throne sort of thing. But that notion of something existing because it can. Yeah, and and that's I I, I the whole book really was written um, at the end of a, a very long dry spell for me. I had the two little girls and I wrote um, prolifically while they were young, and then I had my third child and that just <laughs> everything went off kilter. Um, and he um, was very busy, energetic demanding and the family was growing up as well and I think older kids are harder to ride around than than babies um but yeah so so that idea of like why write why make novels why put something else out there you know there's a lot of um for a lot of authors there's a lot of kind of worry about will anybody read this you know you walk into a bookshop and it's already full of books so why put another one out there so it's really that idea of like is it necessary to write is it necessary to make art and um and and else is is you know is wondering this about about playing violins so the violin kind of stands in for writing I guess I'm writing my own story when I write but that notion of the importance of just that function in society uh, of the arts, for that matter, and and the need for it. You mentioned before Sibby's uh, sort of view on the world. She's the one who can actually uh, see or uh, feel the presence of the ghosts more than any other. Yes, yeah, she's very connected to um, to the ghosts, and yes, yeah, she can she can physically see the ghosts. The other kid, children kind of occasionally sense or glimpse them, but. But Sibby, for Sibby, they're as real as anybody else in the house. Um, but the other interesting thing is that the ghosts do actually turn out... The ghosts are real. They are real. They are actually there. So um, ultimately they come to bear on the house and on the inhabitants of the At house. At first it is a stain on the wallpaper. Sibby watches it. The form of it thickens. It's a blob on the wall and then it's a thing. It's the... End sister, made of cobwebs and shadows of dust and forgetting. It creeps across the floor and hunches at the end of the couch where Sibby lies. No one can see it, 
but Sibby. And then you've got Clancy's perspective, and he's a little more scientific. And there's one point where he sees something, but no, ghosts don't exist. He's in that transition phase. Yeah, he he fancies himself a, a scientist and an empiricist, but actually he's wrong because the ghosts are real. So, but but Clancy's job is also that he's he's the one who wants to hold the family together. He's very invested in in the family's well being, so he has to um, he has to come to terms with the ghosts and and the emotional reality of the family. So it's the culmination of all these strands, and it, I think it's extraordinary keeping all of those strands together, all those issues, all those voices, uh, and and getting that insight of the perspective of children all the way through at different different year levels. Um, now you you mentioned it started online. So how did it end up with Alan and Unwin? Um, the the rights reverted back to me after a year of the last chapter, and I rang up Eva and I said do you want the end sister she said yes please so it was pretty easy um I already had a contract with them so and they wanted me to write a family novel and they were happy for it to be a little bit magical they wanted something that was for this age group so it well, worked very well for them I say nine to 14 which is a pretty expansive age group but yeah. I think it's for any child in that younger end, it's for a reader, a child who's a reader. For the older kids, it's for those those kids who aren't really ready for the heavy themes of YA, but want to want, but could follow a character like Else, who's who um, who is going through older kind of issues, I suppose. So. Yeah, because again, it's it's just coming to terms with all of those different age groups, and everyone could find something in there from a different age group. So it, it sort of touches all of those bases all along that that spectrum of ages which is quite remarkable i love it um so the book is the end sister penny russon is the author and it's an alan and unwin publication jan well it sounds like a much happier book we have a more dysfunctional family in the book that we did today and i spoke with anne bused about her book this i would kill for and it's a text publication